This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Welcome to season six of the podcast. Today, we're talking with Felix Peterson, head of Europe for Spin, about the regulatory environment in Europe, the history of micromobility adoption there, and Spin's efforts to expand into numerous cities and countries across Europe. Felix, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in micromobility? Sure. So I've been in mobility or in sort of urban-related fields for, for quite a long time. Actually, my first uh, startup that I did in 2004 was uh, around mapping and location and people telling other people where they are, so kind of location sharing and POIs. We actually built uh, our own map because uh, Google Maps wasn't around. We sold that to Nokia, which then became later Nokia Maps, and then here, which is still, it's now owned by the German car manufacturers, as you're probably aware of. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I got bitten by the whole location bug in a more general sense. I got really interested in how people move around in cities and behaviors in urban environments. And we back then, we already did a lot of experimentation around using live data to understand flow of pedestrians, the flow of traffic, and, and all these things. And then in 2018, I set my foot on a scooter for the first time. And it was really, for me, this, this kind of, I know that's been a bit over stress that analogy but like this iPhone moment but it really was because in my career I think I first got interested in internet when I for the first time dialed in with a dial-up dial modem from one computer into another and realized that there's a whole world out there and then the second epiphany was probably when I had the first smartphone in my hand which, which wasn't an iPhone it was a Nokia and then realized wow now everyone's going to have the internet on their phone and when I was the first time on a scooter, I just felt the same. It was the same kind of breakthrough experience where you feel like, okay, this is a really different lightweight vehicle. Maybe the future of mobility is not just about changing from a combustion engine to, to an electrical engine and not just having cars basically work in different ways. But as usually with disruptions, it comes often from a very low end kind of element. And these scooters, it was clear for me from the beginning when I first saw it that they're they're more on a gadget type of life cycle. They're very lightweight. They're very simple to use, very low barrier. I was instantly intrigued and then became partnered um, with Lukasz Godowski on with Cirque, which was one of the early European player in this space, in the micromobility or, or scooter space. And that company got acquired by, by BERT last year. And yeah, and then I started really conversations with the leadership, with the founders of, of Spin and, and really felt like this was very much along the lines of where I saw the industry going and, you know, was very much aligned with the findings that I had from this one year of sort of Wild West scooter operations and it was a lot more aligned <laughs> with my personal values but it was clear to me that that's the that that spin had the right approach there and i was very excited when we got to the point where i was invited to lead the expansion in europe and and thought it was a great opportunity and yeah here we are 
<laughs> so Spin started in the U.S. with shared bicycles, then pivoted pretty quickly to electric scooters, was bought by Ford Motor Company in 2018. And as you noted, Spin has now expanded into Europe beginning earlier this year. Can you tell us about that expansion into Europe? Which countries and why? Sure. So we started thinking about Europe last year. The, the year seems so long these days. <laughs> so, uh, end of last year, and then we launched our first country. There was, a, you know, there was obviously COVID and, and a lot of uncertainty in the market. But we launched our first country, Germany, in, in June, and then we quickly followed suit with our first markets in the UK, where we are in where we have the license or won the pilots for seven markets now in the UK. And now we are looking into expanding into Spain as well. So in Germany, we are in 12 markets now. We've been really expanding in sort of the Western region, which is a very densely populated area, which is kind of the core, you could say the core of Europe. It's an urban area of 13 million. It's called the Ruhrgebiet in the Rhineland. So that's where we've been expanding and, and concentrating our operations mostly on. Then in the UK, as probably most of your listeners are, are aware, there has been an acceleration of e-scooter piloting. So there was a lot of pilots that have been awarded and started. So we were lucky to, to get eight of these pilots and we'll be running them for the next 12 months now. We launched a city called Milton Keynes and just as of last week, Basildon in Essex. I'm going to launch uh, six more markets now in December and, and January. And then Spain, also really interesting markets. We, we expect to, to announce the first uh, markets to open in, in Q1 uh, 2021. So Germany and the UK both had banned scooters or didn't allow scooters, if, if I recall. Can you tell me a little bit about perhaps starting with Germany, what has their approach been to scooters and also to shared bikes? Can you give us a little history on how Germany has approached micromobility? Yeah, I mean, Germany is, a, is, is an interesting case. This is actually less regulated than most people think, which is not, I mean, I, I'm, I'm German, so it's kind of <laughs> surprising to me. But what happened in Germany in, in 2019 was the vehicle got regulated on a federal level. So the vehicle agency in Germany, KBA, they basically specified the vehicle. And from a safety standard, I think they, they set a good standard there that is now um, a lot of other countries are orientating themselves so, towards in Europe, including the UK. So they were the first to require, for example, two independent brakes, reflectors, and quite a few very sensible safety features. But then because Germany is a federal country, and not unlike in the US, the states are actually, uh, states and the city are regulating it on, on, on a local level, the actual use of public space has never been properly regulated in Germany. That led to kind of a gold rush situation, a Wild West situation, to a certain extent, where in 2019, after the federal vehicle had been legalized, you saw a lot of influx where people and companies just started in, in a lot of cities at the same time, right? So there was this phase that was not unlike, you know, what we saw in the U.S. when it, when it first started with scooters, where cities were really confronted with a new situation where it wasn't entirely clear where the vehicles could be parked. And if this is a special use of public space, which I would argue it is, right? And that has, that has led to a situation in Germany where there was a certain backlash against how the companies conducted themselves 
And we obviously looked at that situation very, very closely. And now there is some interesting movement in cities with, with cities like Berlin saying, you know, we are actually in charge here. This is a transport system and it needs to integrate with our vision for mobility. And we want to regulate this on a local level and want to argue that this is a, this is a commercial use of public space. And so there are certain rules that apply around it. And that would basically give then finally German cities the possibility, for example, to run tenders and to really choose the operators and to, to define the rules with which you can operate in that city, kind of what we've now seen in other European countries in big cities like Paris, who've done a really, I think, really good regulation and a really good tender. What we've just seen with London and our hope and what we understand from talking to the cities in Germany is that's also moving into that direction. So really understanding how many cities do I, re how many scooters do I really need for the city? What is, what is our concept for integration with public transport? What are the requirements for data sharing and all these things where in the last two years of scooters or micromobility in general, cities have gotten a lot more sophisticated and smarter uh, in understanding how this can really fit in and also how this new mode should be regulated. Right? So you're saying that Germany as a country took the approach of starting with the vehicle specifications, the physical uh, mm -hmm. requirements for scooters. And once those were in place, shared scooter companies felt that they were authorized to launch their service in cities as long as they met the physical requirements of the vehicle, because there weren't other citywide requirements for how to operate any operational rules. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So as soon as you have a road legal vehicle and it's participating in general use of public space and just participating in traffic, it's actually not regulated. And there's been also some discussion around shared bikes around this, a couple of lawsuits between cities and, and shared bike operators, if this is special use or general use of the public space. And that's really the key to whether cities are able to regulate or not. I see. So special use in Germany allows the city to have more specific regulations and general use, you just ride with the traffic and you're like yeah. every other vehicle. And how about the UK? They also did not permit scooters early on. How has their environment developed? I think one thing to, to point out, which is really important in terms of the UK, is scooters are still illegal in the UK. The only thing, uh, and this is really important, and I think they, they have a good point there, what they fast-tracked was the pilots of higher schemes. And of course, you have to, these higher schemes are really in a much better position to actually aid the fact-finding and really understanding how it works because they're all connected. The data can be shared. A safety can be much better provided by centralized rental schemes like ours, where you have certified mechanics. We're aiding these pilots with a lot of research and data sharing we're doing with the government in the UK. So I think really to the credit of the transport agency in, in the UK, is that they're really serious about trying to understand this new mode. And they're quite keen on data sharing, on understanding the rules and regulations around it. All these trials are limited to 12 months. There, there's a lot of also academic research that's accompanying this. So I think actually this was a really interesting way how they approached it, right? They saw on the one hand, they saw the need to accelerate this new mode because of, of COVID and socially distant safe travel methods, as they also saw that 
some fraction of public transport ridership was more reluctant to use it and just getting everyone in a private car, especially in Europe, is really not the solution. So I think they, they saw the need to act. But of course, a city like London is quite unique in the world, right? It's 8 million people. It's huge. You have one or 2 million commuters coming in and out of the city every day. So it's a highly complex city where, where space is already at a premium. So they really want to understand how do we do this right? And Transport for London, for example, is a very sophisticated agency. So I think the, the way they approach it is, is pretty interesting. And they're, of course, also uh, profiting from a lot of learnings that were already done in countries like France or Germany, how to do it, how to not do it, the different cycles that these markets have already gone through from kind of a wild west to we shut everything down to we're regulating it in a proper way together with the operator so that we really gain a transport system that can also be profitable for the operators. And I think a lot of that has gone into the trials in the UK and we're quite excited about how how they're approaching it. There's a lot of good thinking that that went into things like equity zones, understanding how to make this new mode of transport available to a largest group of people possible and safety standards, etc. It's interesting. So you can't buy a scooter direct to consumer and ride it in the UK, but you can use one of the shared scooter programs where those pilots are operating. Yeah, exactly. So you can buy it, but you cannot use it on, on public land. So private scooter use is still illegal. And that's, that's an important point to make, actually. So... What are the other countries in Europe where scooters are still not allowed? And where do you think the other attractive markets will be in Europe for scooters, at least when they're permitted? Europe is is such an interesting, very heterogeneous market. I think there is a kind of a general sort of north-south split where in the north you have a very strong biking culture and a very strong infrastructure that's already in place. So countries like Denmark, the Netherlands, also a lot of student towns in Germany have a very strong bicycle culture. In Copenhagen, already 40% of the trips, of the inner city trips are done with micromobility as, as a mode, right? So either bicycle or scooter. Then, of course, there you have challenges around weather and seasonality. In the <laughs> Nordic, you have a strong, also a strong, yeah, you have a strong bicycle culture, but then at the same time, it gets really cold icy and snowy and windy. In the south, you have less of these issues and you have a very strong, also a strong micromobility culture. It's just a different one. So for example, in Spain and Italy, we see a very large uptake of mopeds. I think they actually call it scooters, but it gets very confusing. Uh, So the small Vespa style mopeds where you already have quite successful uptake because that's been the culture all along. It is also micromobility. It's just not bikes, right? It's something else. So, yeah, I mean, it's really every country is quite different. I think one of the interesting last remaining countries that haven't allowed scooters at all or introduced any scooter sharing schemes is the Netherlands. I think part of it is probably to protect their strong bike culture and also because in a city like Amsterdam, you already have very low private car usage. So they really have to understand how to integrate another mode into that infrastructure, right? And I think they're also being very deliberate and very careful. So it has been the UK. Ireland is another country that hasn't seen scooters yet. All the other countries have it in, in one way or another. And... 
you really have these different phases and stages and it's very different. Some of these markets are still driven by this initial first phase of just curiosity or oh, what is this? Let me try it out. And people taking it for a spin and doing joy rides. Maybe the cities not being yet as clear around the vision, how they integrate it into their transport systems. And then you have these very advanced cities and that has been accelerated through COVID, Paris, Brussels. I mean, in fact, Paris has really stated a very clear mobility vision, the 15 minute city where you're able to reach everything within 15 minutes, really um, proposing, you know, not just sanctions on what you shouldn't do or certain modes of transport that should be sanctioned or should be made more expensive, but really turning it around and painting a picture of this is how we want it to work and this is how our city could look like and london very similarly with 100 years experience of really strong public transport system and they've been much more deliberate on how we bring this together how to integrate it into transport endpoints and generally speaking of course in in europe we have very strong public transport options already at least in the big cities and sort of the more northern European cities. So, of course, they want to protect these systems and want to really understand, is this just a nice add-on or what does this really add and how do we integrate it best and what are the strengths of this new mode? So I think in that way, Europe is probably the most, the tier zero cities, I would call them, the big metropolises in Europe are probably the most advanced in terms of their thinking there. So it's a real challenge for operators like us to win these tenders, but it's really bringing the whole industry forward and us as a company forward as well. US is, is, is more, it's a huge market, but it's a bit more homogeneous in, in terms of how the cities work. And of course, there are also large regional differences, but I would argue in Europe, they're, they're, it's even more diverse and, and more heterogeneous. How are you thinking about the mix of form factors evolving over time in these European cities? There's been a lot of questions around whether kick scooters are really the right form factor. They've been incredibly popular, at least in the U.S. I think they, you know, took a little longer to catch on in part because of the, the regulations, as you've described in Europe. How do you see the mix of form factors evolving in Europe? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it will be clearly a mix. I mean, we're seeing a huge shift from personal car trips in inner cities to something else. What that is, it's clear that it's going to be a huge shift, but how this plays out between owned micromobility, shared micromobility, and the different form factors of micromobility, I think no one has the definitive answer on that. And as I already you know, hinted to a little bit, there are cultural differences. In Southern Europe, you might not have grown up with riding a, a bike. So you feel very safe on a scooter. Because if you've never ridden a bike, it can be a daunting, right? Obviously. And then in the north, when you've completely grown up on riding a bike, you might gravitate towards that form factor a bit more. There are also different use cases, right? For different modes. If I want to transport a passenger or if I want to do my week's shopping, a scooter might not be the right vehicle. But if I just want to quickly go to a meeting, a scooter might be just exactly the right vehicle. It depends a lot on the infrastructure that's available. If I have well-protected, dedicated bike lanes, then riding a scooter is a very safe mode of transport, right? So my guess is it will be clearly a mix of these different modes. There's also 
obviously, you know, a, a distance perspective to this. You take a scooter, maybe it's it's the ideal vehicle for the last mile, the famous last mile, right? But when you get into rides two, three miles and longer, a scooter might not be the right vehicle. So you rather want to do a moped. And, you know, without being able to announce something concrete here, we're also going to experiment with these different form factors and are going to introduce other form factors this year. And, and we feel that it's incredibly important that in the end, you want to think it from the customer and from what is the use case, what is the vision you want to sell to the customer. And I'm pretty sure 10 years from now, you're using your mobility budget towards some kind of subscription, maybe a mobility budget that now goes to a personally owned vehicle. You're going to use it towards a mix of modes and different vehicles you can use. With them. You, you already see it in Finland, where you have some very, very interesting things where they basically require every transport operator in Helsinki to integrate into the city's mass platform. So that already allows now subscriptions that can give you for anything from 50 euro to 300 euro, I think it is, anything where you can use a car on the weekend, privately rented car basically to take your family to the beach. You can use uh, the bikes that are there. You can use public transport, taxi, and basically you have a flat fee for your mobility, taking care of all your needs. And I think that's in the end what you want as a city dweller, as someone who lives in a, in a city, you, you just want to have your mobility being taken care of, like have a flat fee for communication. And, and this will not be just one type of vehicle or one type of mode. So I think all players in the industry are kind of converging or diversifying in terms of what do we really need to offer our customers. What's really exciting about the scooter, and that's what I mentioned earlier with the iPhone moment and what initially drew me to it, is that the, the barrier to entry is so incredibly low, right? So I think that's really exciting. And it's also a lot of fun. So having an electrified lightweight vehicle that lets you zip from, from A to B really quickly and you can just rent it with your phone and all of that wasn't possible three, four years ago or five years ago because the technology wasn't there. And now I think this is for micromobility. The scooter is the really easy entry point, but it's definitely not the end of the, the story. And I think we'll see all kinds of really interesting vehicle types emerge because it's also a different way of producing these vehicles, right? I mean, it's really more on a phone, gadget, computer type of life cycle than the classical cycles in, in, in the automobile industry and like for owned vehicles. So I think you see much faster iterations. You will see much more experimentation with form factors. Some of them will be incredibly unsuccessful, uh, <laughs> but, then, but then you might actually have this pot with you know three wheels and a, and a roof that just turns out to be the perfect vehicle for the winter. So I think that's it's going to be very, very exciting the next 10 years. Well, I live in California, so I probably have the least need for protection from the weather, but I still want a pod or a golf cart, uh, something like that. But I need my own lane. I don't want to get run over by a big SUV when I'm in my pod. So <laughs> I think uh, everyone is looking at this space and saying all of the trips that are less than five miles could be served by a lighter weight vehicle than a car and trying to find the right mix to fill all those different use cases is going to be a really interesting space in the coming years. One of the thing that's interesting, especially around kick scooters, is the question around vehicle design and also operational efficiency. 
And we saw early on in the States using more consumer grade scooters initially, which I think really was a minimum viable product approach to testing shared scooters. I know the companies who use those scooters early on have taken a lot of criticism for it, but in some ways they were proving out the business model before they went and invested in something more expensive. Now we've seen all the scooter companies move toward developing these custom scooters that are more rugged, more durable, more sustainable from an environmental perspective because they last many years now. So how is Spin thinking about vehicle design and also operational efficiency? Yeah, I think you touched a couple of really, really interesting points there. I mean, I've been an uh, investor for a couple of years. And of course, you always look at the unit economics, you understand, you know, can this be a viable business model? And then I think last year with WeWork and Uber, business models really coming into question. I think a lot of initial reaction was, oh, can this ever be profitable? These things, they last three, four months. What are the unit economics on this? And it was always a bit I was always very bullish on, on the unit economics per se, because, I mean, if you look at the the pricing, it's, it, it really started with like a pay-as-you-go pay model. Now the prices are really coming down with things like the spin passes we are introducing and really offering pricing for more regular ridership and, and, and people really using using this every day. But still, if you look at it, this is a relatively low cost asset even now they're getting more expensive and more sophisticated. It's still compared to other much bigger things. It's, it's still a relatively low cost asset. You don't have a driver that you need to pay <laughs> and they become extre- extremely durable. And already last year, even though it wasn't maybe there yet, things like swappable batteries were really already on the horizon and now they're here. So I think from a human and economic perspective, this is clearly something that can be made profitable. Even with the buffer of things that are now being done to accommodate equity ridership and, and more sensible distribution in cities where you don't just concentrate on the tourists, it's still a very viable um, business model. And that's, yeah, the advances there are largely driven by operational efficiencies. So I mean, swappable batteries play a big role. We are now rolling out our first markets where we're really going into swappable batteries and we're charging the batteries or collecting the batteries, exchanging the batteries with electric cargo bikes. And then you have these container style warehouses that we we call them mobile minis, where you basically are able to do basic repairs and charge the batteries in a really decentralized way. And one interesting side effect of this is that the size of the cities of the communities you can serve really goes down. So with this type of model, you can really look into smaller towns, smaller communities that can also profit uh, a lot from micromobility. So I think in the beginning, it was very much only, you could only make it work in, in a very large, very densely populated city. And now we're really looking more into smaller communities, suburbs. So that's that's an interesting side effect of it. And then of course, the, the assets themselves, you mentioned it, the, the scooters, the asset costs for the scooters, they're going down because they, they last much longer. I mean, when I started in this industry, the amount of, of repairs and mechanics that, that we needed there, I mean, that has completely changed now. They're much safer. They last a lot longer from, you know, a couple of months that you mentioned, three, four or five months. 
and now to to several years so that's that's really a game changer and then the other thing is something we are just introducing that we call spin insights which is really an incredible advantage that these vehicles have they're fully connected right so we have sensors in these vehicles we understand the temperature of the battery we understand the the kind of vibrations we can do predictive maintenance we can understand what state is the vehicle in is it toppled over does it need to does it need to go into it can self-diagnose itself so we understand not only this vehicle has a has a problem but already what that problem is and we can deactivate it remotely so of course that already also lends itself to a lot of efficiencies that can be had with maintenance and operations because it's completely data driven, right? And that's actually one of the really, I mean, there's never been a vehicle introduced in a hundred years. And now this new vehicle that's been introduced is basically, they're all fully connected. So we don't, we understand the individual vehicle, but we also understand, of course, demand and where it's moving in the city and all the data we are now sharing also with these trials. I mean, that's something that um, hasn't been possible with cars until quite recently. With pedestrians, you need to have you need to count them. Uh, bicycles, you need to count them. I mean, for a city planner and for an operational planner, it's really amazing that these are all Internet of Things, basically on wheels. Yeah, it, vehicle intelligence is a super interesting area, as you point out. The ability to self-diagnose, to understand the problem, and to do predictive maintenance and things like that seems like it's a really important feature going forward. You mentioned swappable batteries. Certainly, it seems like it's cheaper to swap a battery than to collect a scooter, charge it, and then redistribute it. What are the other operational concerns around batteries? Is it using a kiosk, trying to incentivize riders to swap the batteries? Do you think ultimately in cities you will see a combination of charging docks? I know SPIN has in the U.S. tried to do some partnerships and things, whether it might be at a hotel or on some public space, to create a place in a city where a scooter can be collected and charged and parked both to create some order and also to serve a charging function. When you look out going forward at the question around batteries, do you see there being a mix of swapping and charging or how do you see that developing over time? Yeah, I think those are our what you're referring to are spin hubs, and we actually have them quite widely distributed, especially in, for example, the campus markets that we are in the US. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense there. It will be a mix of things. I mean, you can still have a swappable um, battery scooter that gets charged in a hub. What definitely doesn't make sense in the long term is to collect a whole vehicle just to charge it, even though we announced that we will be carbon negative, not just carbon neutral, but carbon negative by 2025. A big part of it is, of course, using electric vehicles for the whole operation. So plug-in hybrids and then also fully electric. So even then, carbon savings standpoint, it might still be feasible to collect them, but still in the end, looking at the amount of work and the, 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 the space you take up in the city and adding to congestion, I think the future clearly lies in, in swappable batteries and the majority of the industry seems to agree. But then, of course, decentralization plays a big role. So I mentioned these mobile minis, that you have these kind of mini warehouses, and it will get more sophisticated and more differentiated and decentralized in, 
like when you bring a vehicle into a slightly larger regional warehouse for a bigger repair, what are the kind of smaller repairs you can do on the road? And then how does it work with charging? We don't believe in, in user swapping batteries because there's clearly a safety component to this and we'll study it. But for, for now, we've always done really well at spin with completely insourced operations. That was one of our key points from the beginning. So we never had a charger network or a kind of a gig economy style model, which always allowed us to be quite efficient. And, and the more sophisticated operations get, the more you need to rely also on properly trained staff, right? I think this kind of gig economy model that really only worked in the first phase where it was a bit of like you put these gadgets on the street and people somehow charge them at home and throw them in the back of a van. I think that that time has completely passed in the industry. So it really relies on more sophisticated data-driven operations, understanding what does this vehicle need, then it needs a properly trained workforce. So while we want to go decentral, we, we still want to do it with properly uh, trained um, spin staff. But there's clearly a lot to learn. And I'm sure if we talk four years from now, it, it will it will look quite different. But this is our hypothesis at the moment. And our early data for these types of operations really seems to support that hypothesis. And then one, one other important point is with talking about multimodality, what's really interesting, of course, is to have the same battery system for different vehicle types, right? I mean, that would be also a real game changer when you have the same type of batteries in a moped, in a bike, and in a scooter, which will then allow for really efficient operation with these mixed style fleets that we'll see in the future. It seems like for the industry as a whole, having an industry collaboration across providers would also be something that would be more efficient. Is there any attempt in European cities to create some common infrastructure on the charging side or on the parking side to corral things and allow a place where all the different providers could charge the scooters? Yeah, I mean, I think clearly we've seen some of these things, especially on the parking side and the, the Paris tenders and, and the London tenders. But of course, one thing that cities want to, the first thing that cities need to have is, is the data to understand how are these vehicles utilized, where are they utilized? And so that's sort of the first step. And, and I think they all arrived at that conclusion that really having a shared data platform for the cities to understand what's going on and utilization and all these things is the first step. But then, for example, in the UK, it was actually interesting to understand that they want to see also different approaches. And they actually want to understand how do different approaches to certain problems work, and then really look at that after a year, accompanied by research, and trying to understand how to evolve this further. I mean, one thing is clear. This is an interesting public-private kind of partnership, right? I mean, if you have public transport, it's paid for by the city, subsidized by the city, and it's clearly something that is mostly run with a much with a very big, you know, government influence. We're, we're, of course, the micromobility systems they need to achieve some of the same things, like you know, equitable access and, and a good distribution and integration with public transport. But then again, but still privately run operations, which is of course part of the appeal because there will be a pastor clip of innovation. Some of these things they wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for someone who came who had the crazy idea to stick an IoT to to almost a toy and and, and just try it out. You know, like a minimum viable product. So I think the the cities they're they're walking a very a line and i think some some cities are doing this in a really good way to not hindering that innovation and really trying to 
leverage this to accelerate the change in their cities. I mean, they see it as a chance, like they have clearly stated goals, whether it's CO2 reduction or, you know, that 15 minute city in Paris, they really want to accelerate that change. And they understand that private companies can help accelerate that. But then, you know, on the other hand, of course, you have to set some ground rules and understanding that balance. And some cities have regulated in smarter ways, others in less smart, and they're now adjusting and tweaking. I mean, in the end, of course, this needs to be a shared infrastructure, but it also needs to leave room for innovation and not lock the companies too much in for this is how you need exactly how you need to operate for two or three years. I think it needs to have that element of evaluating, looking at the data, looking at it together and saying, hey, you know, maybe here we assume not enough parking spaces. So we should really change the way parking works. So people didn't understand that this is a dedicated parking spot. You know, it's a mix then of qualitative research, asking people and looking at quantitative research, looking at the, 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 the observed behavior, and then understanding where do we need to tweak, right? Where do we need to make changes? And we're just at the beginning. So we've talked about battery and charging infrastructure and parking. The other piece of infrastructure that people feel the European cities have done much better is carving out space on the roadway for protected lanes, places where micromobility devices can ride and be safe from car and other vehicle traffic. How are you thinking about developing infrastructure on city roads in Europe? Yeah, I mean, this has been a very exciting year for this. I mean, in Berlin, my hometown, they introduced these pop-up micro-mobility lanes, uh, which are not so pop-up anymore. They, I mean, it was clear <laughs> that they would be there to stay, but like clearly marked, really taking away one lane in key streets. Then in London has been long working on these bicycle superhighways, which is a very, very exciting piece of infrastructure because it really allows it will be like you know those are roads and berlin is also planning on building some roads that are not even in touch with the regular traffic so it has either bridges or dedicated right-of-ways and it would really for the first time then makes electric bikes or scooters a viable device also for end-to-end commuting so even going you know, five miles, 10 miles every day to work back and forth. And that kind of dedicated infrastructure also allows for different speeds of micromobility devices. I mean, that's something we also have to take into account, right? And there will be some electric bikes that are quite quick. And then you have traditional bikes that might be much slower. And then you have a pod in between. I mean, the space <laughs> that these, like, that's why I like to call them micromobility lanes, not bicycle lanes anymore, because if we want to accommodate the different form factors, they actually need to get even wider. So I really applaud that a lot of cities have now, already before COVID, but now even more accelerated, really just took a lane of the road, protected it physically. That's really important. And we've seen Brussels trying, for example, something quite radical where they gave pedestrians and bikes the complete right away and changed the maximum speed limit to 10 miles per hour. I think they changed it. They rolled it back a little bit now, but that was during lockdown, the first reaction, right? Just here and basically outside of where I live, I, I, I live in Lisbon. When I came here, Lisbon is you know, very, I think, representative of Southern European cities that might not have such a strong cycling history and didn't have a lot of cycle infrastructure when I moved here five years ago. Now, you know, 
just in front of my house, there's a dedicated bike lane. And I actually have to look left before, I, you know, <laughs> years, years ago, it was very unlikely that you'd be hit by a bike. Now you really have to look and you can really see a change in behavior with drivers as well, with car drivers. They're really looking over the right shoulder now when they take a turn because, you know, it's just very common now that you'll have a, someone on, on a bicycle or a scooter come from behind. And it's really interesting to see how in the last two, three years, it probably moved more than in, in the whole 10, 20 years before, and, and it's accelerating. And I mean, we know from our own data, and it's also you know pretty common sense that if you provide the infrastructure, people will start considering these alternatives. So yeah, I mean, you can't wait. And Lisbon is probably a really good study for this because they had basically no bike trips as part of the inner city trips. Then they built the infrastructure and now the trips are there. So it's it's almost a perfect experiment. And I think we're seeing this in a lot of cities right now. Of course, European cities have some challenges. I mean, US cities generally have more space. <laughs> so actually, once you guys get to the point where you're also systematically changing car lanes into micro-mobility lanes, I think the US actually has a bit of a structural advantage there. Of course, in Europe, you have a lot of cities with small, very narrow old towns, cobblestone, and these additional challenges. But a lot of cities get around it by providing really you know, good end-to-end -end really quick paths so that you can take 80% of your trip um, with the bike or with a scooter or other modes. And then you might actually have to walk in the city center and it's banned for micromobility. And I think that's fine. It's always that combination. You can still take 80% of your trip in a very safe and fast way. But yeah, some of these cities are old and they're beautiful and they're not made for cars. And, and so I think it's also perfectly fine to take an old town and make it completely pedestrian. What does the next year look like for SPIN in Europe? What are you focused on and what are you planning for? Let's hope it will be a bit more predictable and, and less crazy <laughs> than 2020. I think we all hope for that. I think we've done uh, an incredible groundwork this year, despite all, all the challenges that we saw in the market and in the world. We're firmly establishing a footprint in, in Europe in three countries. And there are more countries to come. I already hinted to some interesting experiments we're going to do around different modes that we're adding uh, to the mix. I think it's very important to keep focusing on habitual riders. I think the industry is maturing. So we're looking a lot more into customer behavior, into customer retention. Like what does it really take to, to have someone use our vehicles every day? And you know, what is it they, that they need? How do we need to integrate into public transport? So I think there's a lot more to come there on the integration side. We made a big leap this year as a company to come over here. Like I mentioned, we're not using gig economy or some kind of franchise model. So it's really for us, it's firmly establishing ourselves, hiring a local team. We also believe in really honoring the local differences and understanding the cultural um, and regulatory differences. So, you know, it, it takes for us, we're more, we're more, more thorough in going into a country and really hiring a local team that, that has experience in that country and with mobility in that country. And so we've been actually quite quick this year and hopefully we'll be even quicker next year, <laughs> all while standing true to our values and, and never launching in a city without the city consent. We call it our partnership promise, having this internal 
operation where we can really stand for quality and safety, all of that with profitability and firm sites. So um, that's, <laughs> that's a challenge, but we believe that, that Europe is, is clearly one of the most amazing uh, markets, giving the culture here, the strong cycle culture and just the sheer density of some of the areas and the big cities, beautiful big cities we have here like London or Paris or Barcelona will be a really interesting one. So, I mean, as a micromobility company, you have to be a player in Europe. That's clear. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk to you about what Spin is doing in Europe. Thanks for having me, Michelle. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Felix for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the show notes for all of our episodes, please join our Substack publication at smartercars.substack.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.